0: I think that um, for Christians, probably the most important thing is to listen. And to listen not just with ears, but with hearts, with eyes, with our minds, and with to our life experiences. Because the Holy Mother Earth has been speaking to us, and people who are, have been affected for quite some time by the climate disruption have been speaking, and those who are most vulnerable are the ones affected most, but we have not been hearing those voices, whether we've been too busy talking among ourselves or too distracted, and we haven't heard, I think, the voice of God as well.
1: shifting climates where we attempt to rehumanize the conversation on climate change. I'm Michaela Mast.
2: And I'm Harrison Horst.
1: Thanks for joining us. In episode one, we mentioned that this season follows a series of environmental justice case studies, and this one is our second. We also promised that when it comes to climate change, it would all come together in this episode. A tall order, we know, but for that to happen, we're going to leave the familiar territory of the East Coast and go somewhere where people see things a little bit differently.
2: We felt a bit sheepish about flying to our interviews out west. There we were, producers of a podcast about climate change, choosing a method of transportation that is one of the most greenhouse gas intensive there is. Unfortunately, circumstances made it difficult to do otherwise. So we refused to let our contribution to the impending doom of humanity dampen our spirits. We took a flight from Washington, D.C. down to Orlando.
1: Here we are in Orlando, Florida, on our... Layover? Layover? <laughs> I know. <laughs> in an
2: airport. <laughs> Got back on a plane. we
1: in the cabin for landing. At this time, please still laptop computers along with any other carry-on items. I have the seat in front of
3: you.
2: And then finally...
3: Thank you and we'll be landing soon.
2: We arrived at our destination, Albuquerque, New Mexico. Yes. Ladies and gentlemen, on behalf of this flight crew, welcome to Albuquerque.
1: We had a great time in Albuquerque. We took a very windy neighborhood tour with a local Mennonite. We don't even have recycling in Harrisburg right now. Spent time with our awesome eclectic hosts. Oh, 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 oh,
4: oh, 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 you're too young.
1: Met up with some friends at the restaurant that serves the best tortillas in the world. They weren't joking. What? Oh my god, the tortillas are so good. (laughs) I know. And got to know the local Mennonite church well. Albuquerque Mennonite is where our hosts, Tom and Jeannie, are members, and we volunteered there for a morning, making packed lunches for asylum seekers passing through town. It's also where we met our first interviewee.
4: People don't think that things grow in a desert, and I know, like I grew up in the Midwest where things are very green, and when you come here, your eyes have to learn how to see what browns look like, and that brown isn't dead.
2: This is Syra.
4: My name is Saida. Namaste, and we're in Albuquerque, New Mexico, at the Albuquerque Mennonite Church. And I'm the director of the American Friends Service Committee New Mexico Program.
2: Saira is intentional, clear-eyed, and gracious. It's just as easy for me to picture her meditating in a room by herself as it is to imagine her walking at the front of a protest.
4: Before I came out, I had a lot of education about New Mexico, so I knew to be very aware of the water. But as I moved here, this is not a place that can sustain a lot of people. We only have two million people in our state. And so I had to be very, very careful about the water. So the first thing I did when I moved here was switch my faucets to be low flow in mm-hmm. all of my sinks and my um, shower and my toilet, and just making sure, like the very first thing I taught my daughter is like, <laughs> okay, we've moved here, and we have to be very respectful of the water.
2: Sarah did a great job of orienting us to the state of New Mexico, what it means to live here, what sorts of things the people of Albuquerque think about, a sort of Southwest guide for the East Coaster.
4: But then I had to learn over time, like, well, what else does it mean? Like, how do I enter this space and how do I ask permission and how do I act as a guest on other people's land? Like, what mm-hmm. does that mean? Um, and that's not like a one answer. It's, it's learning. New
1: Mexico is home to 22 Native American tribes. Most of those tribes still live on their original land, called Pueblos. Albuquerque is situated between two Pueblos, occupying the land of the Sandia and Isleta tribes. And Sarah's work revolves around building relationships and advocating with and for those indigenous communities.
4: I feel so blessed to be in this work accompanying land-based people because a lot of the teachings are verbal and they're witnessing things and being in relationship over a long period of time. They're not things that you could read about or um, watch a video on or learn quickly. It takes like spending, it really takes being in relationship with folks. And so that means there's so much that I don't know. Saira is
1: receiving an extended orientation to this place from Indigenous friends and mentors, and she says that her time spent learning has been absolutely invaluable.
4: But just the most important things, I guess I could frame it as, they've taught me non-Western understandings of how we look at land and water Mm -hmm. um, as not things that are about ownership, but about belonging to land and water and being stewards of that, Mm -hmm. um, rather than seeing it as, like, in a commodifying way or as an innate object, which it isn't.
1: For a state that has contended over land occupation and ownership many times over, land is a big deal, and so is water. People think about water differently here. It's not something that's a guarantee. New Mexico receives, on average, 13.85 inches of rain per year. And in contrast, our home in Shenandoah Valley receives over 40 Coupled with climate changes that are increasing the hot and dry spells and an increase in projected population, things are looking a little bleak.
4: We live in a desert, so water is our most important resource. Nothing can live without water. So there's a lot of issues around water and who wants the water. So there's battles with development, people who want a golf course, who want to put in like a sprawling suburb. That really affects our, our water.
2: There are systems in place meant to make people more conscious of their consumption and distribute water equally water-saving technologies, bans on sprinkler use during certain times of the year, and another thing, something that the new Mexicans we talk to are especially proud of, their acequia system.
3: An
4: acequia
5: is, is a ditch bank, ditches. which is
4: our traditional water system.
2: Acequias are a complex system of irrigation canals, or ditches, that bring water to the area from the Rio
0: Grande. An ancient system. Ancient old irrigation system. Delivering water to farmers. Gives water to rural farms.
2: Everyone who had access to an acequia had a little gate that they could open and close to let the water through. But there's not a lot of water to go around in the desert. So everyone had a shared responsibility to use only their fair share.
0: It's actually a form of governance. It was one of the first systems of democracy. They decide how much water we're all
3: going to get. Everybody had to take care of the water.
2: The acequias were brought to the area by the Spanish but they've also become important to the native people Saira works with. Aside from being a brilliant way to distribute water in an arid climate, it also reminds people along the acequias of their place within an ecosystem and a community, which is one way that Saira's perspective has changed since arriving here.
4: The traditional people that I work with that are indigenous and Indo-Hispano, they look every year at where our water comes from, so they know that the snowpack determines how much water they look at the top of the mountains and they're always looking at the snowpack and watching how much snow or rain is falling, based on that they decide what they're going to plant to eat mm-hmm. and then they know how to adapt their seeds and what, they're going to, what their diet will be based on precipitation, which is based on looking at the snowpack. Whereas our state engineer, which is a very western concept, will say that there's this much water and it's measured and it's not accurate because mm-hmm. it, doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't flow with the actual rhythm of the earth. So that's that's very interesting, just as one example of what indigenous people have taught me about land and water.
1: It didn't take long at all to pick up on the fact that New Mexicans are far more aware of their dependence and influence on natural resources than most Virginians I know. Water and soil, they're a part of the collective consciousness of the New Mexican people. But not everyone agrees on the way we should relate to the land, and that became clear too. We started to understand that when resources are in contention, things get really political.
3: You have a connection to that here in New Mexico. Uh, They say even like the houses grow out of the earth because it's Mm -hmm. adobe, you know, it's like sand that they make these bricks with and then plaster with with more mud.
1: This is Javier Benavides.
3: My name is Javier Benavides. Uh, I'm an organizer with Albuquerque Interfaith here in Albuquerque, New Mexico.
1: We met Javier on the sidewalk outside of the Frontier restaurant, one of Albuquerque's finest, and he walked right up to us, a big smile on his face. We sat down over some freshly made tortillas, cinnamon rolls and coffee, and got to business.
3: Well, so I was going to say New Mexico has this fascinating history um, of, like, struggle, because, you know, we, and, and a lot of it remains, where we have, like, the worst poverty in the country. We, like, do this dance with Mississippi and Louisiana for the last place.
1: As a former city council candidate and someone who's involved in local politics, Javier is very in tune with the economic and social struggles of the area.
3: And it's got this history like, that goes all the way back to when we were colonized, like the dispossession of land and extraction of resources. And sadly, like our economy's been built around a lot of that, um, with oil and gas and fracking.
1: New Mexico is rich in natural resources, which, while it's upheld their economy for a century, has also been a burden on the people. The land has attracted businesses looking for uranium, potassium salts, copper, gold, silver, zinc, lead, and molybdenum. And today, over 30% of New Mexico's state budget comes from the oil and natural gas industries.
3: So, I mean, but it's, it's an ongoing struggle. And like I said, with New Mexico, the context is that energy extractors, like some of the richest corporations in the world, have a lot of power and they've come to new mexico to extract resources Mm -hmm. i mean they make billions upon billions on this extraction and they put a little bit into like public education here in the state um but the consequences for our people have been like severe you know
2: a fifth of the population of new mexico was living below the poverty line last year a lot of that has to do with the fact that so much of the economy is built around oil and gas and fracking because the wealth of the industries isn't often returned to the people employed in the industries.
3: Yeah, and it's it's just sad because um, it's like they're offloading their bad business decision, which was right. to stay invested in coal for so long. Yeah. And now they were, we're securitizing their debt, so New Mexicans are on the hook now. Like our and our utility bills, they're going to be charging a surcharge to make up that four hundred million dollars over the course of the next twenty years. So they're walking away from that bad decision and we're picking it up
2: so essentially now that coal is phasing out the businesses who own coal mines and factories are trying to soften the transition one way they've done this is by asking the government to help finance some of their debt like javier mentioned another way they've done this is by selling their assets their mines and factories to the local population who can't afford the loss of employment that would come with a mine shut down javier told us that in a lot of cases The groups working for these dying industries are also experiencing the effects of extractive industries currently thriving, like the fracking industry checkerboarding itself across the northwest part of the state.
3: So it it seems like uh, it's those communities, and there's several here in Albuquerque that um, are just kind of like dumped on, you know, they're like the, and and probably to an extent New Mexico, like we were talking about before, uh, we're kind of like the dumping ground for an extractive economy that uh, you know, has had severe consequences for our people.
1: So here's a brief history lesson for context. Current-day New Mexico was originally inhabited by the Pueblo, Navajo, Apache, and Ute tribes. And then in 1540, the first Spanish expedition arrived and occupied that land up until 1810, when Mexico gained independence and control. And then a few decades later, after the Mexican-American War, the U.S. took over, and Anglo-Americans began moving out west. All the while, since the Spanish first arrived, there have been great feuds between the Native Americans and whichever colonizers were occupying the area at the time. So today, the population of New Mexico illustrates that history. 9% of the population is Native American, second only to Alaska. 38% of the population is white, of European descent, and 49% is traditional Hispanic, most of whom have roots in the area that date all the way back to the Spanish colonization.
3: That we have this history of um, trauma, you know, colonization and uh, dispossession of land and extraction, uh, and that the response to that should be something that is trauma-informed, you know, it should be uh, Medicaid so that people have access to counseling, it should be Drug treatment services, you know, to help get people out of the addiction that's generational. So it's it's a much deeper like social safety net, you know, narrative, mm-hmm. and we're finally almost accessing that. We're I think within a couple of years, but um, it's been a long journey.
1: Later in his interview, Javier said that New Mexico is kind of like a microcosm of the world, and that's one of the reasons we were glad to visit. Battles over resources, huge wealth gaps, and a history of oppression and conflict, these are all things that are exacerbated by the changes in climate they're experiencing. But coupled with the heightened tension is also an energized response. Javier and Saira both are involved in widespread efforts for healing and bringing about a healthier home for the whole population. Which brings us to an interview with one of their friends and comrades. You already heard a little bit from her at the very beginning of the
0: episode. To the point that some of our indigenous brothers and sisters have called parts of the state sacrifice zones. And actually some are calling the whole state a sacrifice zone even because of some of the legacy pollution from uranium, nuclear, and now oil and gas.
2: This is Joan Brown. She invited us to her house in Albuquerque for the interview and when we knocked she called out for us to come in because she was in the middle of needing a couple of loaves of bread and couldn't answer the door. Joan is calm down to earth and unfailingly kind.
0: My name is Joan Brown and I'm a Franciscan sister. I live here in Albuquerque, New Mexico and I'm the executive director of New Mexico Interfaith Power and Light.
2: Interfaith Power and Light or IPL, is an organization dedicated to mobilizing a religious response to global warming. They have affiliated chapters in 40 states, and Joan is the executive director of the New Mexico Affiliated Program. When we started talking to Joan, she immediately pulled out a map of New Mexico and unfolded it to show us. The state is littered with uranium mines, coal plants, and oil wells. Most of the center of the state map is covered in colors that represent nuclear testing fallout radiation or methane gas clouds.
0: This place has been traditionally one of extractivism from the very beginning when the Spanish came to this land in the name of the country of Spain. And in my mind, it goes back to this doctrine of discovery um, and the papal bulls, which basically gave carte blanche authority from Europeans to come not just to this country, but to Africa and to other lands. And that if there were not Christians living in those lands, then the lands were um, devoid of people. Yeah. And so y- you could take the land in the name of God.
2: Here, Jonah's referring to a series of proclamations by the Roman Catholic Pope in the 15th century. They stated the inherent right of Christian European nations to, quote, invade search out capture vanquish and subdue all saracens or muslims and pagans whatsoever and other enemies of christ wheresoever placed and the kingdoms dukedoms principalities dominions possessions and all movable and immovable goods whatsoever held and possessed by them and to reduce their persons to perpetual slavery basically if you were born a european christian during the age of discovery You had the right to pursue the ownership of anything that existed in lands unoccupied by other Christians. In the US, the idea that land belonged to the discoverer by right was later upheld by Chief Justice John Marshall in 1823, paving the way for the eventual colonization of the rest of the United States. Marshall's decision is commonly referred to as the doctrine of discovery.
0: Because of that history, though, of colonialism, It's continued to play out in extractive-ism, in extractive industries, whether that's the uranium industry, whether that's uh, power companies that come in and then the energy is
1: basically exported out of the state, or oil and gas industry. Joan is saying that mining corporations are comparable to colonizers, that the extraction of resources in New Mexico is just the most recent form of a worldview that seeks to profit from land without regard for the lives of its people. A lot of these companies are run out of offices in other states. So like Javier said, they come to New Mexico for the resources.
0: New Mexico doesn't have those large companies stationed here. Most of them are in Texas or Oklahoma. A lot of the workers come from Texas. So it's really a difficult situation because we're economically dependent upon some of these industries at this point, even to fund our education and the budget of the state.
1: Because a third of New Mexico's state budget comes from oil and gas, it's going to be difficult for the state to reduce its dependence on those industries because of the implications for the education budget, for instance. For that reason, one of IPL's main projects this year centered around the bill SB 489, the Energy Transition Act. So um,
0: in this legislative session, we just passed the Energy Transition Act. We had worked on the increasing the renewable portfolio standard, which was about to expire in 2020, uh, for I'd say two or three years, and did that all over the state and um, with real intentional reaching out to diverse communities and all of our faith communities to increase that as high as we could to match the Paris agreements at least.
1: Joan and IPL have been advocating for renewable energy for years and with little success. But then in November, New Mexico elected a new governor, Michelle Lujan Grisham, and immediately everything changed. Mm -hmm. And so with that new governor, very quickly
0: some things shifted because she saw it important to increase the renewable portfolio standard. But... Related to that is the closure of a San Juan generating power plant and a coal mine in the northwest part of the state.
1: That power plant is owned by PNM. That's short for Public Service Company of New Mexico, the state's largest electricity provider. They service over half a million customers in New Mexico, and for years they've operated a coal-fired power plant in the northwest corner of the state. Half of the station has already closed down, And the rest is planned to close in 2022. And
0: it was going to close anyway, but it was a matter of how it would close and what could help with a just transition for the communities up there that are going to be left without the coal mine, which provided a lot of jobs.
2: This is a story we've struggled with before, especially after our time in McDowell County, West Virginia. How do we handle the closing of coal mines anywhere in a way that is just and sustainable?
0: So all of this got rolled into one thing. And um, so it it became a compromise bill. And in a compromise bill, not everyone is always pleased with everything. Mm -hmm. But... It moved forward, and uh, many people felt this is the best that we could do.
2: So this bill SB 489 ended up including a couple things. For starters, it listed an ambitious goal of 100% carbon-free energy by 2045, and substantial training for renewable energy laborers. But it also includes a financing plan for PNM to help cover some of their debts as they transition, as well as over 40 million dollars in economic relief for the communities impacted by the coal plant closure. So they're doing some things to address the transition that the plant's employees will soon be experiencing.
0: So, but the other thing I, I wanted to say, too, that I think is significant, when this um, bill was signed, the governor had a um, large gathering of all kinds of groups and organizations. But at that was the president of Navajo Nation and one of his councilmen.
2: The Navajo that were there were asked to affirm the bill and its contents.
0: But what was very important for me was that the day before this signing, they had met as a council and they had been debating whether they should buy another coal-fired power plant that was on Navajo land, Navajo Nation, plus the coal mine at Cayente to feed the coal-fired power plant.
2: To clarify, that's not the San Juan power plant. It's a different coal mine and factory in northwest New Mexico. As Javier mentioned, a lot of these coal-fired plants have been handed off locally in the last decade, in some cases to groups of Navajo. At Cayenta, over 90% of the employees are Navajo, so it makes sense that they would consider purchasing the plant. It's good for the Native Americans, who will be able to hold off unemployment rates and budget deficits, at least for the short term, and it's good for the utility, who won't have to hang on to stranded assets that are decreasing in value. But it's not a great long-term solution.
0: And the day before, they decided, no, we have to stop. We've already devastated enough, and we can't do this. And part of what encouraged them to do that was the passing of the Energy Transition Act. Mm -hmm. So I think as we move forward in addressing climate change, we need to be very discerning. And as people of faith, we really need to be discerning and trying to do our best to act in justice and equity and um, just transitions.
1: The Energy Transition Act required an incredible amount of coalition building from Joan and the others at New Mexico IPL. It's an important milestone for New Mexico, and in fact, for all of the U.S. There are only four other states that have passed 100% renewable plans. This was also the first time we'd encountered a genuine attempt by the government to make the transition away from coal a just one. But, like most pieces of legislation, SB 489 was far from perfect. And when we asked Javier about it, he had a lot to say.
3: Yeah, I actually, um, uh, I thought we could have gone a lot farther. And right. I was um, on the side of trying to push us not to just, like, seed our power right off the bat. I was working at an organization called New Energy Economy, uh, and their vision, we saw a future where our energy and our electricity was not... Um, monopolized by this corporation, which is PNM.
1: PNM is the utility Joan mentioned, the one who's closing the coal-fired power plant. But considering their history of extraction in New Mexico, Javier thinks they're getting off too easy. And he doesn't like the fact that the plan includes a mechanism for the low-cost financing of PNM's debt, or that it includes a place for corporate energy at all.
3: So this bill, SB-489, was a negotiation with PNM, but it didn't... It didn't begin to dismantle that corporate monopoly over our state's utility or state's energy system. You know, I'm a minority. There were a lot of people who were supporting this bill, but um, I thought we should have gone a lot further. And by just kind of ceding our power to p it locks in their ownership over all this for the next 20 years. So that's kind of a bummer. Oh, wow.
2: This is a legislative-sized case study of another question we've asked before. When it comes to climate change, how do we move fast and together? especially when you're talking about state politics where things already move so slowly. This being said, the reason Javier is so passionate about this bill is that he can visualize how an energy transition could be economically beneficial and potentially even healing for his state.
3: So, it's we're, but we're in the moment, we're in a moment right now, like a shift, um, where finally the opportunities to change that trajectory are like popping up, you know? Um, yeah. With our energy transition, like, we see a future where like, we have so many assets that could really build our economy. Like, so we could do some really amazing things, but we have to like, get over this hump of the entrenched, historic, extractive industries that wield so much power like in our politics.
2: So far, we've been talking about issues that span New Mexico as a whole. The dichotomy that is a scarcity of some resources and an abundance of others in the Southwest affects the entire state. But we're about to zoom in and see what it looks like on the city level. And for that, we need some help from our hosts and Albuquerque guides, Tom and Jeannie. All
1: right. So first, are,
3: are, are we on the air?
1: We're on the air. Oh, my God. Both Tom and Jeannie carted us around town all week to show us the local scene. Jeannie and her Prius. So the mountains there are um, called the Sandias calm and his pride and joy.
0: So Buttercup is a 1974 Plymouth Valiant.
1: That's Thomas N. Elmhorst, truck driver, teamster, news analyst, art critic, world traveler, renowned gourmet, highway philosopher, conversationalist extraordinaire, and connoisseur of vintage Mopars, or in layman's terms, antique Chrysler collector.
3: Now you feel the power surge from this
4: six-cylinder engine, the G-force is sucking you back in the seat, and as you travel down the uh, Eubank Boulevard, you may feel, if you get in touch with your inner self, Uh
1: you may feel
0: a bit supercilious, okay, (laughs) and um, like a little bit arrogant as you look at those common cars,
1: Yeah, you're riding... Jeannie is just as well-versed and skilled, a bundle of energy whose generosity is never-ending and love of learning is insatiable. But more and
0: more, we're you know people are calling it the international zone. This world market um,
4: was started by Vietnamese.
1: She made sure we had an authentic experience between a trip to the foothills and a lesson in green and red chili.
4: Oh, look at that. All around town you'll see tree trunks, that yes. trunks that have died and people carve them into...
1: And between the two of them, we became well-acquainted with the area. ...littering
3: in my heart and some romance, and I really like this place. What's going on? Pretty soon, I succumb to the idea that I'm absolutely in love with New Mexico.
1: And after such a delightful detour, we've arrived at our next interview with an Albuquerque native who showed us yet another side of the city.
5: When we talk about like rehumanizing or humanizing climate change, we got to look at climate justice yeah. and environmental justice.
1: We found ourselves talking to a guy named Antonio Maestas. Um,
5: so my name is Antonio Luis Maestas. I tend to put the Luis in there because uh, there's another representative, state representative with my name. People get us confused all the time.
1: Antonio has an easy laugh and a buoyant personality. Um, we met with him at the University of New Mexico for a couple hours and during that time touched on all sorts of topics. He's passionate about astrophysics, dancing, Tibet, and maybe most prominently, bringing about justice.
5: But I work, currently I work at Juntos, our air, our water. I'm the community organizer there. Um, We're based out of Albuquerque, New Mexico, specifically in the South Valley, in communities called um, San Jose, Mountain View, um, International District, Westgate, and West Mesa.
1: The South Valley isn't actually a part of Albuquerque proper. It's a thin strip of land that runs along the Rio Grande, just south of the city limits.
5: A lot of it's close to my heart because you know I remember growing up in this community and like experiencing a lot of the same struggles that you know um, it's still my community. My community faces.
1: Antonio grew up in South Valley himself in the community of Mountain View, so the area is familiar to him as are the challenges they're facing.
5: In environmental justice communities, you have all types of industry that border each other, right? You have in this lot, you have a concrete factory. In this lot, you have an oil refinery. In this lot, you have a chlorine factory. Then you have a metals recycling plant. Then you have a sewage plant. Literally, I'm, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm actually like going, driving down the road and, and and talking about these community, you know, our communities here. Uh, that's what it looks like. Uh, that's a real life story.
2: In his current work with HUNTOS, Antonio works with communities to protect themselves against those industries.
5: I've heard you know, lawyers say, you know, these people, referencing our communities as these people, need to learn how to live in harmony with the industry. And it's like, we've been living with the industry for all of our lives and it's killing our families. Like there's no harmony that comes out of that.
2: As a community organizer at Juntos, Antonio explained that their goal is to empower those already in the communities to pursue whatever campaign they think is important. And so Juntos does a lot of workshops and volunteer trainings to give community members tools to organize themselves.
5: Our committees are made of um, volunteers who host like committee meetings in their houses to say like, all right, we're impacted by zoning laws, all right, how are we gonna talk to our county commission? How are we gonna talk to our city, the air quality board about zoning laws that are here impacting our air quality, our water quality um, and our quality of lives?
2: Looking in, you might think that they're an organization that works primarily with environmental justice issues. But Antonio explained to us that in places like the South Valley of Albuquerque, it's hard to separate environmental justice from all other forms of justice, and really from the pursuit of a good quality of life.
5: And I think, like the work that Junto's does as a program and the volunteers do, um, really shows that environmental justice is a intersectional movement, right? Um, because, like, environmental justice covers food deserts. Mm-hmm. Environmental justice covers Uh, lack of education, right, no access to education, uh, it covers transit equity, and there's many more things that are environmental justice issues, so when we say we want environmental justice, we're not, you know, just saying we want to clean up the park, you know, we're saying we want equity, but it all connects in the end.
1: Antonio is a strong believer in grassroots power, and a great deal of that comes from seeing volunteers involved with Juntos take action in their own communities. And to explain, he told us a story. It takes place in Mountain View,
5: they were trying to open um, a fertilizer factory in the community of Mountain View, my community that I grew up in, um, right next to an acequia. An ace-
1: That's the water system we heard about earlier. So, Mountain View neighbors in acequia, is home to a high concentration of factories and plants. Uh,
5: and is dominantly a low income community of color, mm-hmm. uh, mainly Chicano, Mexicano, Latino, right? So, the acequias in the rural part of Albuquerque in the south are very contaminated because that's also the industry belt of Albuquerque. Um, so they were trying to open this fertilizer factory right next to this acequia, right next to a community. Like, literally, like the only border between the community and that fertilizer factory was um, the acequia.
1: And the community was not okay with this. They dealt with enough water contamination. In fact, the same building the fertilizer factory was going into had once been a paint thinner factory, which had already contaminated the area's groundwater.
5: A lot of people in that area are on wells, because it's it's, the community was there before the industry, which is really important to know. So the wells are contaminated, so the drinking water is not contaminated.
1: But they decided to take action in court. Um,
5: but the community uh, went before the zoning board um, to testify against this permit, saying...
1: And the permit for the fertilizer factory was actually denied. And not only that, but.
5: After the permit was denied, they were ordered to clean up. Mm -hmm. Not that company, but the company that was there before Mm -hmm. was ordered to clean up the plume. And now they use.
1: The paint thinner factory, which had originally contaminated the groundwater, was forced to address the problem.
5: And now they use the building to shoot movies, which is like pretty cool. You know what I mean? So (laughs) it's like.
2: This was a story of success indeed. And Antonio had more to share with us as well. But we wanted to ask Antonio about his perspective on climate change. As someone who sees the immediate impacts of environmental injustices, does he see climate change fitting into the same conversation?
5: When we talk about climate change, we tend to separate the hu- like the mm-hmm. human aspect of it. And we talk about the human aspect and what humans do to the climate, but we don't necessarily break it down to say, where are these industries, industries located? Mm-hmm. And that's where the climate justice movement came from. The environmental justice movement said, look, You're not including our communities in the conversation, and our communities need to
2: be included in the conversation. There's
5: no space for us there.
2: For Antonio, it's possible to advocate for climate change, but remain ignorant of the justice issues that, for him, are a crucial part of the conversation. Mm
4: -hmm.
5: So we have climate change advocacy and climate justice advocacy. Climate justice advocacy says, we we believe that climate change is real. But the solution to climate change is you have to look at where these industries that are impacting the climate the most are located. Mm -hmm. What communities are affected first? Low income communities of color, because they are impacted by industries. So the industries that are causing climate change are located in our communities. Mm -hmm. So we need to be at the decision making table and at the forefront.
2: We're going to take a step away from New Mexico for a second. An interject a conversation we had at Yale University with someone who spends her days thinking about this difference.
6: i just add to that that, um, that climate change is not the same thing as climate justice.
1: We're at Yale's Forestry School, and we're talking with a professor of public health and law.
6: And I'm Marion Engelman-Lotto, and I teach at the School of Forestry and Environmental Studies, and also at the School of Public Health here.
1: We're talking to Marianne because she's involved with something called the Environmental Justice Clinic. The clinic was initially housed under Yale's law school and seeks to serve the environmental justice movement by advancing and enforcing civil rights in the environmental context. Marianne, who started the clinic, has devoted her life's work to fighting racial discrimination and found herself swept away by the environmental justice movement in the 90s. So if anyone could name the connection between environmental justice and climate change, it would be her.
6: We can think about or um, posit uh, steps to take for to address climate change that might actually exacerbate inequality, and that's not climate justice. Mm-hmm. If we um, allow trading schemes that allow polluters to get credits in one place and continue polluting in low-income communities of color, for example.
2: These trading schemes are usually called cap and trade systems, where the total amount of emissions from a given market is capped by a regulating body, and anyone wanting to pollute more than that must purchase credits from others in the market who have emissions to spare. The perk of this system is that it creates a tangible financial incentive for polluters to reduce emissions. But the downside is that pollution can become distributed even more unequally.
6: As we make these plans to address climate change, people have to have a say in their future. There has to be procedural justice. There has to be meaningful involvement in plans affecting people's future. And then there has to be distributive justice. There has to be a way of of making these change and implementing policies and creating policies that will not shift all the burden, not even shift any of the burden onto those who are um, most disadvantaged in society.
1: This is exactly what Antonio said too. Climate change response will rarely turn out as climate justice unless those affected are invited to be decision makers. The problem is, Marianne told us, For the current decision-makers and many others in the U.S., environmental justice as a historical and systematized phenomenon isn't even recognized.
6: I think where it hasn't broken through, in part because a disproportionate number of facilities are in low-income areas, is in middle-class and upper-class white areas where, um, you know, if it's out of sight, out of mind, oh my goodness, you know, where are waste facilities? Oh, that's a landfill? Oh, how terrible. You know, Mm -hmm. if it's not in your neighborhood, you might not be aware of the burden that people are feeling.
2: I think back to how surprised I was when I began to understand the realities of environmental justice, that in the U.S. there are patterns that determine who lives closest to landfills and to factories, because that wasn't true for me. I grew up in the woods, and then in white suburbia. But at the same time...
6: I think for many communities, it wasn't a shock. Mm -hmm. Because they have been uh, exposed to lead and nobody's listened to them. Or they have been, in an ongoing way, exposed to uh, coal ash or other health hazards and nobody's listened to them. So if you take that long view, you realize, yes, it's broken through the national consciousness, but as a systemic issue, Mm Do people really understand that these patterns of inequality that are so ingrained in our society have led to inequality and exposure that is not an issue of personal choice? Not yet. I don't think we're there yet. Hmm.
2: Out of everything that Marianne said, there's one phrase that sticks out to me. Patterns of inequality. I think patterns could be the key here. Patterns are why Antonio can mentally drive down a street in the Mountain View neighborhood and list the factories there. And patterns are why Joan and the others at IPL put together a map that shows the pollution threats blanketing the state of New Mexico. And if I may refer back to episode one here, patterns are why the people in Buckingham are protesting the compressor station, because the selection of their community as a site was not an isolated occurrence, but a pattern in the web of injustices that cover our country and world. I think it may be why MLK said, Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Because when you start going out of your way to find these stories, you realize just how prevalent they are.
0: Prayer for the Life of the World Whichever way we turn, O God, there is your face, in the light of the moon and patterns of stars, in scarred mountain rifts and ancient groves, in mighty seas and creatures of the deep. Whichever way we turn, O God, there is your face, in the light of the eyes we love in the salt of tears we have tasted, in weather countenances east and west, in the soft skin glow of the child everywhere. Whichever way we turn, O God, there is your face, there is your face among us.
1: So where does this leave us? We know a little bit more about New Mexico's history, and we know that the retrieval and use of resources looks a lot like a power struggle in the American Southwest. We're continuing to learn that situations of environmental injustice aren't isolated occurrences. Even though they're on opposite sides of the country, Buckingham and Albuquerque belong to the same pattern of injustice. And we know that that pattern of injustice is related to climate change, that the community is feeling the heaviest impacts are on the front lines of each. But it took one more piece of conversation for it all to come together for us.
0: And I look at extractivism as not just the resources, but also uh, extracting the health of people, <laughs> the future possibilities in land, um, the land, uh, the social health and well-being. We're talking with Sister Joan Brown so again. it's a bigger kind of picture, but I see that it kind of goes back to this worldview that we need to have a paradigm shift on.
2: Would you say that uh, climate change (laughs) and the effects of climate change are also an extension of colonialism? Um,
0: You know, I I would. I look at climate change, um, you know, both locally but worldwide, that same kind of worldview is being played out now in kind of a maximum way as there are island nations that are submerging people's lands, especially in Africa, that are becoming desertified, or the folks living in the Arid Triangle, there sometimes seems to be little compassion for that. So it's sort of like, well, those people aren't as important as we are. They may be expendable, which to me is another, like a contemporary view of what this colonialism is, And what the doctrine of discovery was saying, that certain people are more worthy than other people. And the ultimate decision in that is who is going to live and who is going to die.
1: And that's what environmental justice is all about, and climate justice too. We know that there's no clean way to extract and process coal, or to create steel, or to compress natural gas. And we know that the impacts of climate change are not distributed equally. So by developing those industries and neglecting to address climate change, we're telling the folks we've met in this podcast, like Veronica and her neighborhood in the suburbs of Chicago, Ella and the rest of Union Hill, Randy's family in McDowell County, and Durga's hometown in the mountains of Nepal, we're telling all of them, we're willing to sacrifice you and your people for the sake of our lifestyle.
0: So uh, I often say that with climate change, the biggest change that needs that's happening or needs to happen is not in the climate itself, but in the change, the climate change of the human heart.
2: So again, we have found that the will to resist comes from within. Not everyone calls it the same thing, but it is undeniably spiritual. This thing that gives people hope in the face of devastation and in spite of brokenness for both Joan and Antonio. Spirit is the heart of resistance.
0: And that's why I'm involved in Interfaith Power and Light and with faith communities in that spiritual place. Mm -hmm. Because I think ultimately this is a soul crisis and a spiritual crisis.
5: And so when you resist, there's a form of spirit in that. Because when you are resisting, you're not resisting out of hatred, you're not resisting out of bad intention and bad will, you're resisting out of love. The anger comes from love that's where it becomes spiritual because it is a part of your being, right?
0: And we can work on whatever issues we're going to in climate change, whether it's food, the air, the coal-fired power plants, whatever, but if we're not being moved to change our worldview and our relationships I mean, we're not going to get anywhere.
5: But we're going, you know, through tears, through difficult conversations, we're going to reestablish ourselves and we're going to thrive and we're going to prosper as people of color. We're going to like we're going to move, you know what I mean? We're going to do it.
0: For the long haul, that spiritual, religious foundation is vital mm-hmm. and essential mm-hmm. for what we're facing into the future.
5: So when I say spiritual, I mean the resistance is healing us from within.
1: Shifting Climates is produced in collaboration with Sarah Longenecker, who is also our photographer and web designer.
2: Theme music is by Jesse Rice and Madeline Miller. Credits music is by Luke Mullet, And transition music is by Maria Yoder, Maya Garber, Perry Blosser, and John Bishop.
1: A special thanks to the Center for Sustainable Climate Solutions, who's sponsoring this project.
2: And our shout-out this week goes to Neil Anderson and the countless others from Albuquerque Mennonite, who helped us while we were in Albuquerque.
1: You can find us at www.shiftingclimates.com. Check out the photo essay that goes along with this episode and previews of episodes to come and more. I'm Michaela Mast.
2: And I'm Harrison Horst.
1: See you next week. Hey, Harrison. Hi, hey, Michaela. What are we doing, Harrison?
2: <laughs> We're standing on the back porch of Jeannie and Tom Elmhorst's house.
1: It's a nice place, isn't it?
2: It's a little cold.
1: Why are we here?
2: <laughs> Sarah has her, our house key. <laughs>
1: Oh. she's
2: out on the town with a friend, and we cannot get into our host
1: house. That's true. So we will be here for an unknown amount of time.
2: So to entertain ourselves and to keep ourselves from getting cold, we've decided to talk to you
1: instead. How convenient. Our faithful listeners. Aren't you glad? <laughs> now, there is one perk to the situation, and that's that we picked up food on the way home. And chai. And we're resourceful enough to have our own silverware. (laughs) So we don't have to go and construct a fork out of a stick or something.
2: And we've got a fountain here, so we have water.
1: (laughs) Oh, look! Good news! (laughs) Jeannie! She just texted. Three minutes away. Hallelujah!